that gave me hope. And it was clear by what she said in her speech, the total chaos that this country is in right now with the current leadership and administration and how vital it is for there to be a change. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, the United States is participating in its most unconventional convention. The Democratic National Convention is taking place not in Milwaukee, as originally planned, but virtually due to the coronavirus pandemic. Traditionally, the convention is when the nominee is decided and a pageant of political luminaries takes the stage to make speeches and formally launch the general election. It's also where the parties advance voices that they consider critical in their appeal to voters, and it has been known to launch political careers, notably a first-term senator from Illinois named Barack Obama, who delivered the keynote speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention, thus launching him into the national spotlight that he rode to the presidency four years later. Today, we talk with five Vermont delegates to the Democratic National Convention. Carolyn Dwyer has been Senator Patrick Leahy's campaign manager for his last four re-election bids, and she's also headed Representative Peter Welch's efforts in 2006 and 2008 and advised numerous local candidates. She's delegate for Joe Biden. Jim Dandino is the former Democratic House campaign director for the Vermont Democratic Party and a delegate for Bernie Sanders. Lisa Ryan is the director of the Rutland Community County Justice Center at Brock Community Action, and she also serves on the Rutland City Board of Aldermen and was the former first vice president of the Rutland area NAACP. She's a delegate for Bernie Sanders. Mary Sullivan is a longtime state representative from Burlington, and Allison Lively from Woodstock is an 18-year-old delegate for Joe Biden and a freshman at Stanford University. Let's begin with Carolyn Dwyer. Carolyn, what moment stands out to you uh, about this convention so far? I think the key word right now in everybody's life is adaptability, and the Democratic Convention has had to adapt it well. So it's been really exciting to just see it as a brand new experience. Um, This notion that we can incorporate people from all across the country in ways we haven't in the past that we're actually getting to hear from more people than you would at a traditional conference because of the way they've structured it. So each day, because this is in such a different environment, it's really exciting to tune in and see what's happening. And of course, I have personally loved Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden, and I'm super excited to hear our vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, tonight. Um, So... One of the notable uh, facts that has emerged is that TV viewership uh, fell 25% compared to 2016, uh, and there's been an especially steep drop among young viewers. And it raises the question, uh, Carolyn, do conventions matter anymore? Well, I... When it comes to the viewership dropping, that's not a surprise because there's other platforms. So one thing I'd be curious about is where else are people engaging with what's happening at the convention? I know there's been a real effort to ask the delegates to engage through social media channels. And there has been a lot of traffic there where there have been clips of different speakers or different issues that have come up that have been promoted. So I think one thing people are going to want to look at is the totality of exposure. Where are people engaging? What are they seeing? Uh, to determine if it's really less engagement or just a different kind of engagement. One of the things that struck me uh, that 
is happening now that we've never seen before because we haven't had the opportunity was that uh, round robin of states uh, ratifying the delegates, whatever that was technically, where we actually went to each state and uh, and and every state sort of showcased its message. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying we should do that all the time. Um, let me uh, turn to Jim Dandino, uh, delegate for Bernie Sanders. Jim, um, talk a little bit about where things stand with the Bernie-Biden split. So the DNC voted down the Medicare for All platform plank. What does this mean? And are you concerned that uh, voters, supporters of Bernie Sanders, will not turn out in full force for Biden? Uh, no, I'm not concerned about that. Um, and I think in part because of uh, how forcefully uh, Senator Sanders is making the case for Vice President Biden um, in his speech on, on Monday night, um, I think he laid out the stakes of this election really, really well. And, and his message through the whole um, convention to this point has been, um, you know, we've got the most progressive platform in the history of the Democratic Party. Uh, Joe Biden has made a number of commitments to, to supporting uh, a lot of these ideas. Um, and But the work doesn't end with a presidential election. Um, the work continues on um, after we get Joe Biden elected, after we get a Democratic Senate, um, after we expand the majority, the Democratic majority in the House. Um, you know, it, it still falls to us to keep up the pressure on our legislators to make sure that they are following through um, and, and sticking to the platform that, that we've put together. Um, there's obviously some stuff in the platform that isn't as great as some of us would have hoped, but it's still a, a remarkably progressive platform. Um, and, and as the Senator said in his speech on Tuesday night, um, this is the most important election that this country has faced since maybe 1864. Um, you know, we don't, we, we can't make the perfect, the enemy of the good here. Um, and I think, I, I think he's doing a great job of being forceful about that, a great job of being clear, um, about what those stakes are. And I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Hmm. Um, let me turn to Lisa Ryan and, uh, uh, just again, to reintroduce you, uh, director of the Rutland County Community Justice Center at Brock Community Action, also on the Rutland City Board of Aldermen and former first Vice President of the Rutland Area NAACP and a delegate for Bernie Sanders. Um, Lisa, uh, what stands out for you uh, during this convention week? What what has moved you? Well, this is all just so new to me that I feel like anything and everything I'm engaging with that has to do with the DNC is exciting and moving to me. Um, you know, of course, I, I think like most folks would agree, I wish so badly we could all safely be in Milwaukee um, to have this in-person experience. Um, but technology, thankfully, has made it so we can participate um, virtually, like um, Mary was saying. So I think... Um, you know, I've been able to tune into the LGBTQ caucus um, and the Native American caucus. And today I'll be um, watching the, the Black uh, caucus. So I'm looking forward to um, watching the Black caucus today and then some other caucuses this week. Um, and of course, I, I was most moved by, I think, Michelle Obama's speech, which probably most people were, I imagine, and just the poise and candor and professionalism that she um, 
really just spoke to and enamored. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it gave me um, a glimmer of hope that, that we can do this, um, that we will have uh, Joe Biden as our president and Kamala Harris as our vice president, and just gave me a lot of hope into looking um, forward to November 3rd. Were you surprised uh, at how, you know, I was struck during Michelle Obama's speech. I mean, we've all seen her speak in public for many years now. It was a very different kind of Michelle Obama speech um, where she really, uh, I just kept thinking she is bringing the fire. You know, it is not a role or a tone of voice that we're accustomed to hearing a first lady why, how, how did that affect you? How did that strike you? Well, I think that she was super direct. And again, she's a professional, classy woman. Um, and she was direct in getting her message across. And for me, like I said, you know, that gave me hope. Like I, I, I think, and it was clear by what she said in her speech, the total chaos that this country is in right now with the current leadership and administration and how vital it is for there to be a change um, come 2021. And she just really spoke to that and spoke to, you know, just her husband and her family and other people who have been leaders um, in, in wanting this change and needing this change um, to change the leadership uh, at the White House. And I think that um, she was very serious and, and straightforward and she's, you know, she's, she, people listen to her. People listen to her and they believe her because it's from her core and it's true. And I believe in her and I listen to her. And so that again has given me great hope and um, purpose in really being part of this and also, uh, you know, for our upcoming election. Can you talk about what the uh, nomination of Kamala Harris means to you, the first African-American woman on a presidential, vice presidential ticket, and also say something about some of the controversy that's emerged around uh, Senator Harris and her role as a prosecutor? Um, What are your thoughts on both? Um, I am thrilled that um, Biden has elected uh, Kamala Harris for his VP. Um, again, as, um, a person of color and a woman and seeing someone who looks like me in such a vital role in a vital position, um, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Um, it's emotional, it's exciting. And, you know, there's always going to be, I, I honestly, I think whatever, whoever was elected by Biden, um, the narrative doesn't change, right? So people are still going to be, who are against Kamala or who, who don't support her. There's, it would have been, if it was anybody else, I think the narrative doesn't change. It, it, you know, they'd, she'd still have a hard time. They would still have a hard time. Um, but I think particularly because um, her role as a prosecutor, her being a woman of color with the climate of this nation around racial inequities and injustice, um, that this is just a huge step. And for me, I, I, I just try and concentrate really on what she will do for this country and um, try and put the negative things and the other kind of gossip and whatever it is out of my head because I just try to po- focus on the positive. 
Okay, um, Representative Mary Sullivan, longtime state representative from Burlington, who is retiring at the end of this term. Hi. Mary, um, you've been to several conventions, am I right, in person? I have many, yes. Many. So how does this differ from being at a live convention? Uh, it differs greatly. Um, I, you know, often around this time, we'll think back to, oh, the Chicago convention, the Boston convention, the New York convention. Um, but <clears throat> one thing I really, really appreciate is that um, a lot of work went into, well, first of all, it, they did start planning early to have a virtual convention, and that certainly shows. Um, and that we, you know, I've been involved, you know, not, not just watching the two hours at night, but um, I'm going to the um, climate council meetings and the women's caucus and, um, and you know, this entertainment. And so they've really put an effort into making it as much of a convention experience as possible. And I so appreciate that, especially for the people who haven't attended one before, because being there in person, there's nothing quite like it. Um, it it's really an exhilarating absolutely exhilarating experience. Um, but um, we need to stay safe. And, you know, the hires up knew that immediately. And um, this is a pretty good um, second, I think. I know we're in the middle of a Democratic convention, but there's also news coming out about the Republican convention, such as the fact that um, this couple from St. Louis who famously came out with armed against unarmed protesters are going to be featured speakers. Um, what do you think the Republican convention is going to be like by comparison with it's, it's featuring those people, it's featuring the young man uh, who faced off with a Native American elder on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, it, it just strikes me as uh, shocking, really. It, um, I think we have highlighted the best of our, um, the best, as Lisa was talking about um, Michelle Obama and the wonderful speeches that we've heard. Um, and if this is who they're going to show, this really is the worst of the worst. And I am, I'm beyond appalled when I heard about those, um, that couple who um, pointed the gun at the, um, I think it was Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, and that's just beyond, these are not, I mean, these aren't people who are, you know, good people who are participating in our democracy. Um, I, I found it appalling. Hmm. Um, let me turn to Allison Lively from Woodstock, an 18-year-old Biden delegate and a freshman at Stanford University. Allison, um, tell me how you came to be a delegate. What made you decide to get involved? Well, I actually saw an ad for it on Facebook. Um, that said register to be a delegate here and I was interested so I did and I initially ran to be a district level delegate at the state convention and I ended up losing that race but I ended up winning the race to be an at-large delegate which was held a couple weeks later. And what does it mean to be an at-large uh, delegate? Well, for states that are bigger than Vermont, there are congressional district delegates and there are statewide delegates. And it just happens to be in Vermont that our congressional district and our state are the same. So talk a little bit about um, the issue of young voters. 
uh, 18 to 29 year old voters turnout peaked in 2008 at 52% and has fallen since. Um, why do you think that's happened? And how do we get young people to vote in this election? Well, I'm optimistic that people or the, the young voters are going to turn out in this election. I've seen a lot of young voters engaging online and through activism in a lot of different ways. So I, I know that young people really do care about our, our country and about our futures. I think what's difficult for young voters is that a lot of them think that voting doesn't matter. Some of them are hopeless. Some of them think that it doesn't make a difference. So I think the biggest thing we can do to have young people turn out is to tell them that your voice does matter and that we need you. What made you decide to get engaged? Well, I've been engaged in local politics in Woodstock for quite a while. I've been going to my local school board meetings since I was in the eighth grade. And that actually happened after one of our dress code controversies that I cared about what was happening in my school and I started going and I really got interested in politics kind of through the local politics. And I'm glad that I have. What do you hear from your peers, uh, 18 to 20 year old peers about uh, whether or not they're gonna vote? Do you hear apathy among some or what's your sense? Most of the young people that I know are excited. They're excited about voting for the first time. They were excited to register, which is actually very easy in Vermont. Um, I'm, I've graduated from high school at this point, obviously, but I did help with a voter registration drive that did get a lot of our seniors to register then. They voted in the primary in March, and I'm very hopeful that they're going to turn out in November. Let me turn back to Carolyn Dwyer. Carolyn, among the hats you wear are that you are a master strategist in campaigns. Uh, you've run a number of, uh, as noted earlier, Senator Leahy's and Congressman Welch's campaigns and been an advisor to many local candidates in Vermont. So looking as a campaign strategist at what it's going to take to win against a just unprecedented, unconventional candidate like Donald Trump, what do you think the keys are? I think the first thing is that it's not enough to run on your opponent's negatives. You really have to offer voters a positive vision for your own candidacy and what you're going to do. And I really think uh, the Biden team very broadly defined has been doing that. What's been really special this year is that we had this incredible, incredible crop of candidates running for president, each one of them bringing something really special to the table, each one of them completely qualified to do the job. And so it is not just about Joe Biden's agenda and now Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but there's this incredible group of people surrounding them from Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Leon Castro. There's just an incredible list of people that represent, I think, the Democratic ticket this time. So um, being able to show not only where they're at at the issues, but tapping into this deep talented young bench of future leaders to also present our vision for the future and for the issues we want to uh, present as a party. Um, the challenge people always have to focus on, however, we like these horse race polls nationally that says, oh, Biden's ahead by 10 points. And those are really meaningless, uh, as we all should have learned in 2016. These are state by state races. 
And so paying attention to what issues are going to drive those uh, really, you know, two handfuls of states that are going to decide the election is important. Um, and they tend to be in the middle of America where they've had a, a real set of struggles around the economy and about really not just uh, thriving now, but finding a place where their children can thrive in the future. So I expect that we'll hear that what, what is the agenda and what is the vision? What does Donald Trump do for those people in middle America? And what does Joe Biden propose? What do you think are going to be the biggest challenge or the biggest vulnerabilities for Biden and Harris? I think the challenge for every candidate in 2020 is figuring out how to do this without person-to-person uh, -person contact. You know, you really rely not just on the candidates being out and about, but their supporters. And so, you know, you're going to see a lot of new experimentation. You know, how can we reach people digitally? How can we reach people by phone? I think everybody's really um, at one level struggling, but at another level innovating. And that's something exciting we should watch. Um, I think, you know, the uh, view is that Donald Trump is somehow better for the economy. And that's going to be a challenge to get over that perception, because certainly if we paid attention, I'm not clear on anything he's done to improve the economy other than put more money in the pockets of people who already had plenty. And so talking about a positive economic vision, because this income inequality has been a challenge, but there's also been a fundamental shift in what our economy looks like and what our workforce looks like that, you know, people are really begging to have addressed. And I think that will really be a challenge for the Biden team to figure out how they can communicate a positive economic agenda that's really going to resonate with everyone. Lisa Ryan, um, how concerned are you about voter suppression in this election? I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, I'm worried and I think um, I'm scared. I think a lot of people probably feel very similarly. Um, we need people to get out and vote. We need people to find a way to vote and understand the importance um, and that literally our lives depend on it. And um, I'm terrified for November 3rd, to be quite honest. I'm absolutely terrified um, because I just don't know how somebody who has no values or morals or no respect for humans or anybody um, is in any way a leader and in any way should be in charge of running this country. And I think we are very desperate and we need a change now when we need Trump out. Um, Mary Sullivan, I'm going to give you the last word. You have the longest view of anybody of the political process. Because um, I'm the oldest. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but what gives you hope? What enables you to reassure people that in the long sweep of politics and history, uh, we're going to be okay after this election? Because as we just heard Lisa say, um, there's real fear that people have. Um, and I share Lisa's fear that um, and voter suppression has been one of the um, you know, ways Republicans know they win elections. But um, I really have hope because first of all, um, a lot of people who were totally duped by uh, Trump, I, I actually know some of them, um, have no one in my immediate family, but, um, you know, one or two uh, moved out, who actually 
voted for um, Donald Trump. I, I know none of these people are planning to do that again. Uh, you know, I was horrified that I think it was like 51 or 53 percent of white women voted for um, for Trump. And I, I think um, his four years has really opened up eyes uh, for a lot of people who weren't expecting this. Uh, and I think um, I, I do have hope that um, we're all on to this voter suppression. And there's a lot of people out there uh, keeping an eye on it, uh, taking things to court, you know, they're getting on top of the uh, postal service now. And, um, you know, I still, I, I can't even imagine what the total end game is going to be like. Like, just, I mean, I know he will not walk out with any dignity and um, go through the uh, inauguration, but um, does he leave of his own free will or does he have to be dragged out? I mean, those are pretty much his two options. So um, whatever, it's like just have that man gone from the White House. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Uh, Jim Dandino, uh, Lisa Ryan, Carolyn Dwyer, Mary Sullivan, and Allison Lively. Uh, thanks to all of you, delegates to the Democratic National Convention, for being part of this conversation. Thanks, David. Thank you. Okay, that does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all Vermont Conversations at vtdigger.org. Tune in next week for another Vermont Conversation.